Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So our last, um, in the series of 316 Timeless Truth this morning. So I remember I was in primary school. Um, now, I have no recollection, really, of the specifics of this, um, of what year it was exactly, because my memory eludes me. Um, but it was later primary school, so I was maybe year six, maybe year seven. I certainly wouldn't have gone to this thing in high school. So we're talking sort of 89, maybe 1990, maybe, around there. Um, and I was at some sort of school holiday program. Um, and it was actually at the Langford Basketball Court Community Centre there. Like, yes, I grew up in Langford, don't judge me. Um, and we all, so the, the funny thing is, is like, I grew up in Langford and judged everyone who was from Gosnells, and everyone from Gosnells judges people from Armadale. And so that's just the way it goes. That's the hierarchy of judging. So anyway, but now I live in Gosnells, so I, I'm sort of in the middle. Um, <laughs> So, but I remember this day and I, I have no recollection of what happened during this day. All I remember was that during the day, they ran a competition. And the competition was that you had to remember a Bible verse. And if you remembered the Bible verse at the end of the day, you got a prize. And I remember I was able to remember it and I got a prize. It ended up being, you know, one of those twisting, like... Um, crayon things that you can get as a kid, yeah? A bright orange one, that's what I won. I, I thought it was amazing, I had it for years. Anyway, I, I, I actually still use them now because I mark my Bible with them because they don't seep through the pages, just a tip. But um, can anyone guess potentially what verse that was? Which one? John 3.16, that is very true. So it is probably the mo- I mean, the, I know the photo went up, so everyone has saw it anyway, but, um, but it's probably the most famous verse, yeah? Everyone knows it. It's on posters. It's on jewelry. As you saw briefly in that photo, quarterback Tim Tebow used to put it on his eye paint. Can you pop that up for me, Derek? There you go. Um, there's a burger place called In-N-Out Burger, has it on the bottom of their cups, and another clothing company called Forever 21 had it on the bottom of their bags, so it's everywhere. One author said that it has become emblematic of the central message of the Christian faith and is called the gospel in a nutshell. So let's read this nutshell, and we'll go on from there. So we're in, obviously, John chapter 3, and we'll actually start at verse 14. So just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him 
is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. In light, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So we're going to this morning look at this most famous verse. One author said that it is a masterly and moving summary of the, of the gospel cast in terms of the love of God. And in this case, we better understand what this verse says. Now, I know that for some of you, or for, I'm potentially walking on eggshells with some people because it's such a beloved verse, there's a potential if I say something that doesn't fit in your worldview about this verse, that you're going to get angry at me. <laughs> That's okay. I can handle that. Anything I'm going to say this morning is not something that you're going to lose faith over, obviously. But I'm going to say some stuff this morning about this verse that you potentially might not have heard before. And that's actually okay as well, because understanding is actually really, really important in order to gain clarity about what it's actually saying. So one of the big questions about this verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, is who is speaking right now? Is it Jesus or is it John, the author? Now, this is a highly debated topic, okay, as to where the quotation of Jesus' words end in his conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, most of us, I would suggest, have a red-letter Bible. So we have red letters in it that tell us where Jesus speaks and where he doesn't speak. Now, my Bible actually has Jesus speaking all the way to verse 21. Ancient texts didn't have quotation marks. They also didn't have spaces, but they didn't have quotation marks. So it's actually not 100% clear as to when Jesus stops speaking in his conversation to Nicodemus and John starts narrating that conversation. Most scholars, not all, most scholars say or argue now that Jesus ceases to speak in John chapter 3, verse 15. And 3.16 is actually an extended reflection of John's, the author, not Jesus. Some scholars actually argue that Jesus' quotation finishes in verse 12, but most say that's not true. Most don't agree with that. Most say it's verse 15. So let's briefly have a look at why they think that. And it's mainly, obviously, because of the language that's used. Firstly, the tenses change. The conversation to this point has been in the present tense. And verse 16 is now speaking in the past tense. He says, gave. When he's talking about it, so he gave his one and only son. So he's talking in past tense. 
the expression only son in the Greek is only used by the evangelist. Jesus doesn't refer him to himself like this. Jesus also does not normally refer to the Father as God. And the terms world, light and only son, which are all terms used several times between verses 16 and 21, haven't been used since the prologue of John in chapter 1. So John introduces a whole bunch of ideas about Jesus and then stories happen, conversations happen, and then John begins to pick up on these same ideas of chapter 1 again. So there's a whole bunch of language that suggests that it's actually not Jesus speaking, John 3.16. So scholars, as I said, mostly agree that the author, John, is talking about what happened in the previous section between Jesus and Nicodemus and is giving us a fuller insight into the meaning and significance of the, of the events being testified to. One author writes this, The evangelist, that is John, provided members of his audience with the vital information that would enable them to comprehend the plot and to understand the, unforeseen, sorry, the unseen forces which were at work in the story. The interpretation by the narrator, that is John, reveals the unseen motivation behind all of God's actions. And those motivations is love. Now, let me just say this. This is not a major issue. Okay? There are no major doctrines at stake here. It doesn't affect the theology. This is not something to have a crisis of faith over. If you've thought your entire life that Jesus spoke these words, it's absolutely okay that you continue to do so and disregard my last three minutes of saying something. It's actually okay. However, we need to remember that whether Jesus spoke it or John is speaking it, that the text remains authoritative whether the words are from either of them. But we need to also understand that understanding the text allows us to even more fully appreciate what's going on. Not only in the text here, but also in the full breadth of salvific history. So, while some of us process that, and while some of us recover from that information, let's get into the text. So, We'll start in the first half of 3.16. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. Now, the traditional interpretation of this verse, usually, and the, the verse I actually remembered back in 1980-something, was, or is, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son. That seems more familiar to a lot of people's Tongues, I would say. So the word so here, when it's translated like that, so God so loved the world, is often interpreted to highlight the degree of God's love for the world. It is interpreted as sort of how much God loved the world. Now, while this is not incorrect at all, by any stretch of the imagination... 
because it can be said that the degree of God's love for the world is demonstrated in the giving of his son. So it can be said that God loved the world quite a bit, quite a lot, you would say. Yeah? Scholars say, however, that the Greek word used here is better translated in this way. My Bible actually translates it the same as that. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. And it's saying something like this. That God loved the world. And this love is demonstrated in this way. So it is not highlighting the degree of God's love, but the manner in which that love is expressed or demonstrated. And when it's translated this way, scholars say that the Greek word that's used in this section is always referring back to something previously mentioned. It's not referring to something that it's about to speak about. So in that way, we can see that it's referring to something that has been said directly before it. And most argue that it's referring to chapter 14 and 15. Let me read those again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake... So this is Jesus speaking now. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up, as the snake was lifted up on the pole by Moses. And he's referring back to Numbers chapter 21. Excuse me, verses 4 to 9. So just as a, um, a bit of context here. So they were walking around in the wilderness. God had been providing them with manna, obviously. So they were being fed. And then the people started grumbling. So verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. I find it interesting. I mean, we always think that we're better than them, where God is miraculously providing food every single day for you. It just appears on the ground, and you're like, come on, man. I'm so sick of this food. Like, seriously. Anyway, we think we're better, but we're not. Okay, verse 6. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses, Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. 
So like I said, and as the text said, they were wandering in the wilderness and they were grumbling against God and Moses. And they were punished by poisonous snakes invading the camp that killed many of them. And God gave Moses the remedy. He was, he was to make a serpent made out of bronze, put it on a pole and hold it up. And everyone who looked at it would live. We find out later in the text that the bronze um, snake was stored in the tabernacle as a sacred object. But we find out in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that, the king, that King Hezekiah actually broke it into pieces because the people were worshipping it. What they didn't realise was that it wasn't the bronze serpent that had saved them, but it was the saving power of God. So just as Moses put up the serpent on a pole and lifted it up for the people to see and to live, as Jesus' words say, that the Son of Man himself must be lifted up, and all who trustingly look to him will experience eternal life, the life of the kingdom. These two verses also answer Nicodemus' question in the previous section. We're not going to go into it. But he asks questions about what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to enter the kingdom? How do you do that? And Jesus answers him by saying that they can only happen through the lifting up of the Son of Man, by looking at him and believing so when we come back to, was it the degree of what God was saying, as in so loved the world, or was it the manner in how he loved the world? If we're looking at it from the manner perspective in which God loved the entire world, it means that it's not some abstract idea about degree. Because God so loved the world, what does that even mean? It doesn't make it wrong because the word can be translated like that. It's just a bit less likely. But when we start to focus on the manner in which God loved the world, we realize that it's not a degree, but it's embodied in human flesh. God had only one son. And because of his love for humanity, he gave him to make eternal life available to the entire world. That's amazing. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, in Paul's great hymn, actually complements this truth by what it does is actually tells the story of this from Jesus' side. Let's read it briefly. So this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Verse 5, chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he'd emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus so at sorry that so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father the son willingly gave himself even unto death to death on a cross for our salvation 
And because of this, God exalts him and his name above every other name. We also need to remember one other thing when we're talking about this passage, that it says that God loved the world. This is a message for the entire world. Not just the elect, not just the chosen, not just the privileged, but the world. Now, this actually would have been quite strange to Israelite ears because they were the elect. They were the privileged. And we'll get into the rest of the text in, um, in a sec, in chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. But it tells us that this world that God sent his son to save habitually embraced darkness. And because they habitually embraced darkness, it was condemned. But he sent his son anyway. He gave his son for the world. He gave his son for me. He gave his son for you. I often don't think we appreciate exactly what's happening here. I find it really humbling. So when Jesus died on the cross, that was the full and dramatic display of God's own love. And the thing is, it wasn't a messy accident. It wasn't like, oh crap, the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, so I better do something about it. It wasn't God also letting the worst happen to someone else. The cross is at the heart of John's amazing new picture of who God is. God is now to be known as both Father and Son. And when the Son is revealed as lifted up, when he died under the weight of the, of the world's evil, he's glorified. And the cross is the ultimate ladder that has been set up between heaven and earth. I just want you to pause just for a sec. Because this verse is so familiar to us that there are probably some people in here going, yeah, we know all this, Brett. Of course, Jesus died for our sins and the cross is important and now we get something with God. Pause and think of the majesty of that moment. So, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son who would be lifted up, that is, that he would be crucified, that he would be resurrected, and that he would be exalted. And the thing is, we don't have to try harder. We don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. All we can do, just as, the, as it was that all the Israelites could do in the wilderness with the bronze snake, is to look and trust, to believe, to look at Jesus, to see him in the full display of his God-saving love and to trust him. So that's the what and the how of verse 316 in John. Now we need to look at the why. Why did God send his son? 
Second half of the verse. I'll, I'll start from the beginning again. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. Second half. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the rest of the section can actually give us some insight into what this is looking at. So we'll start at verse 19. I'll read it again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. We know that in a dark room, a candle makes a big difference. Yeah? The coming of Jesus into the world, his ministry, Jesus brought the light of truth and righteousness to shine on all who encounter him. The thing is, before Jesus, all there was was darkness. There was no choice but to be in darkness. But now that the light has come, there's a choice. And everyone has to make that choice. Do you look upon the light of Christ, of the exalted Lord, and embrace the truth that is exposed? Do you delight in the presence of Jesus and welcome his teachings because you accept that everything you do is through God and his grace? When I read that, it reminded me of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We have nothing to offer God for our salvation. We're lost, we're poor, we're wretched. Everything is from God, through God, and for his glory. Or the other response to the light being shone is that you flee. Do you flee the light? John says that those who flee the light or embrace the darkness, it's because their fallen human heart is revolted by being exposed by the light. It exposes their wickedness and they hate the light and avoid it to avoid being exposed. And the thing is, this is where we play the cards of that feels really unfair. That feels really unjust. If God's a God of love, why can't he overlook that? And just accept everybody. The thing is, that view is something called universalism. And it actually sits outside the orthodox belief of Christianity. Now, as I said at the start, that verse, this verse we're talking about this morning is everywhere. Everyone knows it, whether they're a Christian or not. And the tragedy is, is that there are people who, who know this verse and don't embrace it. They don't embrace the truth of it. And the tragedy is that there are people in hell right now that know this verse. But the thing is, knowing this verse isn't enough. Because it's looking at Jesus on a pole, exalted and believing. That's the difference 
between knowing a verse and understanding what the verse is talking about and who that verse is talking about. They didn't want to be exposed and they embraced the darkness and they rejected the light. Not believing means remaining in darkness. The darkness and those who embrace it, according to here, must be condemned. Not because it offends some arbitrary laws which God made up for fun, but because evil is destroying and defacing our present world. And it's preventing people from coming forward into God's new world. And that world is eternal life. So the purpose for God giving his one and only son was that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the question now remains is what is eternal life? We're just sitting on clouds, playing harps, wearing sketchy leaves. Now, Jesus tells us what eternal life is in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that you may know the one and only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing God. But as the Old Testament had this also knowledge, is that it's not simply knowing information about God. It's having relationship with Him. It's in, it, in, it involves a response. It includes obedience. And it also includes fellowship. In John's Gospel, Jesus employs three main sort of primary metaphors in relation to eternal life. The first one is birth. You experience eternal life by being born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The second metaphor that Jesus employs in relation to eternal life is water. It's likened to water which quenches thirst. John chapter 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And the third primary metaphor that John uses or that Jesus uses in John's gospel, is bread. Eternal life is likened to bread, which satisfies hunger. Chapter 6, verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. I'm not going to break those down, both the water metaphor and the bread metaphor actually was a part of our I Am series from last, sort of last few months. So if you want to know more about bread and water, please go and listen to. We did a full sort of message on both of those. Um, in John's gospel, though, eternal life is equivalent to the kingdom of God. It's not simply just an endless life. Nor is it life that begins after this life is finished. 
It's a new kind of life. A new order of existence that that, that characterizes the person in the present age. Those who believe in Jesus are born again. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. God's plans were inaugurated through the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus and will be consummated at his return as the Son of Man. Paul expresses this in terms of salvation. Believers are already saved. They are presently being saved and will yet be fully saved. Eternal life for those who believe was obtained at the cost of Jesus' own life and is mediated to them through the word of Jesus. The thing is, the point of the whole story is that we're not condemned. You're not condemned if you declare Jesus as Lord, that you've looked at his exalted body and you declare and believe. You don't have to let the snake kill you. God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus has planted a sign in the middle of history. And that sign that he's planted says, believe and live. So as we close our service this morning... The question I need to ask is, do you simply just know the verse? I think that's a question that we all have to contemplate. You can have been a Christian your entire life and you can sprout off chapter and verse of this entire book. I knew a guy when I was in Bible college and they used to play, we used to play a challenge with him that we would find like some, like five obscure words and see if he knew where it was from. And most of the time he did. It was like insane how well he knew his Bible. And this isn't in relation to him, but the thing is you can be able to recite this book from beginning to end know it word for word in all of the translations and still not have a revelation about Jesus. Because without the power of Jesus, this is a book. So, the question is, you know the verse, everyone does. Go watch the NFL, Tim Tebow highlights, see his face paint. But the thing is, have you allowed the reality of God's truth to penetrate your heart and your life? Because on the other side of this life, God's not going to go, oh, well, you knew my book, but the thing is, I didn't know you. That's a terrifying verse, that God doesn't know you.
And the thing is, when we start to, when you talk about this stuff in a room full of Christians, and this isn't judgment at all, please don't hear these words as judgment, but the thing is, Christianity in a lot of ways is cultural. You get in a Christian bubble and you think, well, I'm okay now because I come to church and I tick a box and I tithe and do all that sort of stuff. Cool. But that is absolutely not the equation that this verse is talking about. The equation that this verse is talking about is, have you seen and experienced the exalted Lord and have you sat in obedience and submitted your life to him? And you could have come to church for 40 years and have not done that. And that's something that you need to sit before the Lord with. And the thing is, you might just go, well, hang on, am I saved and all of that sort of stuff? You know what? That's up to you to decide. That's up to you to bring before the Lord and say, you know what? Lord, do I just know about you? Have I worked you out like a maths problem in my head? And I think that if I do X, Y, I'll end up with Z. And I'm not yelling at you now. This is the most passionate thing about my life. Everything that I do is determined by the fact is, is my life about acknowledging who Christ is and am I telling others about him? Through my messages, have you gotten a greater revelation of the reality of who Christ is? Because if you haven't, if it's just information, then I've absolutely wasted my time. Because I haven't done my job. And I know that we want our kids to go to good schools and we want good jobs and we want to have fun. Like all of that stuff, yeah, cool. All of that is completely secondary to this question. This is the most important question that anyone is ever going to ask of their lives. Do you understand who the Lord is? And is he actually the Lord of your life or do you just know a verse? Verse. 